We are in Romans chapter 7. We're going to do Romans 7, 7 through 25. We're going to try to finish the chapter. We started Romans 7 last week, that Jesus Christ rescues us from the law. Rescues us from the law. We died not only to sin, chapter 6, we died to the law because Jesus rescues us from it. And by the law, he's referring to the law of Moses, the moral duties all throughout the Bible, the ceremonies that we see all throughout the history of Israel, the civil responsibilities, and I think by extension, all religion, all moral systems, in a sense. We are not dependent on them for our salvation. You know, when you think about it, the rules, they're kind of a, an important part of life. Right? We live by rules. The Constitution of the United States is a set of rules. Pretty much any meeting of any organization follows a set of rules. Usually it's Robert's Robert's Rules of Order. I don't know who Robert is, but he set a rule of order that is used throughout all of the United States and I think also throughout Europe. If you go to school, there are school rules, right? No chewing gum and whatever, all these different rules. If you go to the gym, a gym has rules. If you go to Planet Fitness, for example, there is no grunting allowed. In fact, if you grunt, what happens? The lunk alarm goes off, right? And actually sets off the alarm. And actually some people like to go to Planet Fitness to see if they can set off the lunk alarm. If you go to a pool or a hot tub at a hotel, there are rules to how long you can be in the hot tub and whatnot. I mean, take a shower before you go in the pool. Does anyone actually obey that rule? I don't know anyone that obeys that rule. Literally takes a shower right before they go into the pool. I don't know. There are driving rules. Speeding. Is, a, uh, is, is not allowed, right? We see a sign that says 65 miles an hour. We say, okay, I'm good to go 70 or 75. We love to break rules, right? It's a stop sign. Well, that's a rolling stop, close enough. Some rules we bend, other rules we outright break. Well, God has given human beings a set of rules to live by called the law. How did we do with it? Not so good. Now what? We face the judgment of breaking God's law until Jesus rescues us. Jesus rescues us from the law. We're going to be in Romans chapter 7, starting at verse 7, going to the end of the chapter. A lot to talk about in this passage this morning. We read this, What then shall we say, that the law is sin by no means? Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. 
For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is the word of the Lord, and may the Lord add his blessing to the reading and study and proclamation and application of his word. This morning, Jesus Christ rescues us from the law. Here's where we're going, 7 to 13, the law brings sin to life and kills us. Then 14 through 20, the law is impossible for us to keep. And then 21 through 25, that final section, the law is overcome only by Jesus So 7 to 13, the law brings sin to life. As he says, is the law itself sin? And he uses that again, that strongest negation possible, meganoito in the Greek, by no means. Absolutely, 100% not. This law itself is not the problem. It says later on in this paragraph here, verse 12, the law is holy, righteous, and good. Problem is not the law. What the law does is it reveals our sin. And he uses the example of coveting, which is a very good one out of the Ten Commandments because it's the one that you can't see with your eyes. It's something that happens in the heart, to covet, to desire what does not belong to you, to be self-centered and greedy for yourself. When we hear the commandment, you shall not covet, what happens? It brings to mind the very concept of coveting and brings to life that desire to covet. I used the example last week when I say to you guys, do not think of elephants. What happens? We just thought of elephants. You can't help yourself, right? Uh, someone used the example in our la- last night's study, um, the commandment, don't put beans in your ears. If you tell kids all the time, don't put beans in your ears, what do you think kids will do? Put beans in their ears to see what happens, right? Or um, there's a story about uh, no fishing. So there was this, this is from uh, Today in the Word from 1995, a flagship hotel in Galveston, Galveston Texas uh, was built next to the water. Large plate glass windows adorned the ground level dining room. Occasionally, guests used to come up with the brilliant idea of fishing from their balconies, located directly above the dining room. And they used these heavy sinkers that would, they would cast, and sometimes the sinkers would come back in and break windows, shattering expensive windows. They spent large sums of money to find a way to solve this problem, until finally they came up with a simple solution that worked. You know what it was? Take down the no fishing signs. (laughs) The idea of a no fishing sign gave people the idea to fish from the balconies and caused the problem. They simply took down the no fishing from balcony signs from the windows and they never had a problem again. We're rebels in our hearts. Sin takes the commandment and makes it deadly for us. 
It produces temptation. He describes himself, he says, I once was alive apart from the law. I think what he means by that, before I learned Torah. As a young man growing up in a Jewish household, I was younger, didn't understand it. I started to learn the Torah. And then as I learned things like do not covet, supposedly promised life to me, ended up proving death. Spiritually fatal for my life. And he says again at the end here, did what is good bring death? No, by no means. I cannot blame the law. The problem is the sin that dwells within my own spirit, within my own heart. Now looking back specifically at the law in relation to Israel, um, because that's who he's speaking to, to those who know the law, most likely the Jewish believers within within the congregation in Rome. He says if we learn nothing else from the Old Testament, friends, the reality is we know from the Old Testament that the law didn't work. It didn't perfect Israel. Again and again, Israel rebels and is exiled. They're split into a northern kingdom, a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is more rebellious than the southern kingdom. What happens to them? The Assyrians come in, they conquer them, and God uses it as a judgment. They are exiled. The southern kingdom is more faithful, but over time they become unfaithful, and eventually the Babylonians come and conquer them, and they get exiled. Some eventually return, the Romans conquer, and they control the land. The law could not perfect Israel. Now, Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that Israel was any worse than any other group. Um, I don't think the Italians would have done any better. Or the Irish. And for sure, the Canadians would not have done any better than Israel, right? I like to pick on the Canadians because they're just so friendly. Our neighbors up to the north there. Israel understood they're special because they are chosen. They weren't chosen because they were special. They're given the privilege of the law which reveals the heart of God. And they're blessed because of it but it did not perfect them. And we'll look more at the blessings of that, specifically for Israel when we get to chapters 9 through 11. But at this point, understand the law does not make us perfect. In fact, the law doesn't even necessarily make us better. It reveals our sin. Here's what the law can do, even for us here today. We can begin to confuse knowledge with obedience. Somebody who studies the scriptures, they know it, they memorized it. They can even quote it. And they begin to confuse, well, because I know the Bible so well, I must be more spiritually mature. It can give a sense of false assurance. I I think I'm saved because I obey most or some of the law. I'm pretty good at the set of rules that God has given us. And there are sadly many who are heading to hell thinking that they are safe because they obey some of the law. It can lead to hypocrisy. People hide behind a veil of religiosity, makes them look righteous because they obey some of the law. It's a facade that can be used. The law can lead to spiritual pride. I can look down upon other groups because they're not religious like I am. They don't know the Bible as well as I do. It becomes a pedestal. C.S. Lewis said, of all bad men, religious bad men are the worst. And that's true. When you look at even Jesus' life, he didn't spend his time going after the prostitutes and the drunkards about their sin. He spent more of his time going after the scribes and the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. The law reveals our sin. It should make us more humble, more repentant, more dependent upon God and his mercy. Paul describes this struggle with trying to obey the law in the inability, the impossibility of being able to do it in 14 through 20. 
He examines this pursuit of the righteousness under law. He starts off this section with the word for, uh, gar in the Greek, but basically meaning I'm explaining what I just said. So not, not a new subject, moving on to something new, but an explanation of this struggle with the law that I had just described. A more detailed explanation. He says we know the law is spiritual. The law comes from the very finger of God. It's a gift to us. But myself, I'm of the flesh. I'm sold under sin, describing a life in Adam. So I don't even understand my actions. I'm unable to see my own sin rightly. I don't have a spiritual perspective to even see sin rightly. And then he describes that struggle. I do the things I don't want to do. And the things I know I'm supposed to do, I keep doing them. That which I hate, I continue to do. And that constant struggle with trying to obey the law and being utterly unable to do it. He says, I know it. I know the, I agree with the law in my mind as a good Jewish person. I understand it, but I can't do it. I can't follow it. I desire to do what is right, what is right, but I'm unable. Sin dwells within me. I try, I try, but I fail. And the law kills now, there, this passage has been a controversial passage, I think we could say, or let's put it this way. There's been a divided interpretation as to what, is, is this describing Paul before he was a Christian? Is this describing Paul since he became a Christian? So is this the struggle of a pre-Christian Paul under the law trying to gain righteousness? Or is this the struggle of a Christian Paul ongoing? And some variations of that, some have said this is actually Paul speaking in behalf of all of Israel, behalf of all of sort of Old Testament Judaism, maybe even speaking as if he's like Adam. Uh, So there's different variations. As a Christian, is this any Christian? Is this an immature, carnal Christian? And um, if you want to know more about this, by the way, there is an article, I printed just about 10 copies by the door to my left, um, just outlining both sides and the history behind them. So if you're someone who says, really, I need to know more about this, even after my explanation, if it's not, you still want to know more, feel, feel free to dive in. But let's just say this, it's been divided on one side, um, referring to that this Paul here is referring to the Christian life, um, you have Augustine. So likely the greatest theologian, most influential theologian in the history of Christianity, and following him, Luther, Calvin, John Knox, that whole Reformed tradition. On the, the description that this can't refer to the Christian life, but rather the, pre, rather the pre-Christian Paul, you have the Greek fathers, origin and so forth. And what I would say the best scholars, uh, Bible, Roman scholars today, uh, evangelical, conservative evangelical scholars, John Stott, Douglas Moo, P.T. O'Brien, some of the best scholars understanding the flow of Romans. So I'll tell you what I believe. And at the end of the day, if you don't agree with me, we can still be friends, right? We don't have to be enemies. Um, I take this as referring to Paul pre-Christian. He is under the law. He's writing autobiographically. As a good Jew, he knew the law. He understood what is good, but he tried and tried and failed. He could not obey it and saw his need. And if you look at the flow of Romans, chapter 6 is all about being dead to sin. Chapter 7 is being dead to the law. In fact, nobody doubts that 7 to 13, verses 7 to 13, refers to the pre-Christian Paul. There's no question about that. The question is whether he switches in verse 7, and he uses the word for, kind of describing what he's already said. It's not until chapter 8, but now, 
there is no condemnation for those in Christ, that it gets to the freedom we have as Christians. The life he describes here is too defeated, in my opinion, to describe the Christian life of the flesh, sold to sin. In chapter 6, he specifically says we are free from sin and not its slave any longer. Ignorant of God. Unable to obey. A prisoner of sin. And no Holy Spirit mentioned whatsoever. Again, some commentators say this is the carnal Christian, the immature Christian, maybe the legalistic Christian. Maybe. Maybe. But understand, he describes here, is not a struggle. It's a complete and utter failure. I do what I should not do, and I don't do what I'm called to do. Robert Gundry, the famous uh, good New Testament scholar, said, The I in 7.14-25 to 25 is not merely unable to avoid a mixture of the good and the bad. It cannot do the good at all. Only the bad. Sin has taken over so completely that the I is imprisoned. Contrary-wise, those who are in Christ do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The wording is exclusive. Or uh, Herman Ritterboss, the great Scottish theologian, said the, talks about the absolute impotence of the eye to break through the barrier of sin in the flesh in any degree at all. The Christian life, if this is a reference to the Christian life, it would seem to be a complete and utter failure. But feel free to disagree with me. Um, and feel free to grab that uh, article if you disagree and you want to think through it. How does this apply to us then? It applies certainly to the Jewish people. Friends, we believe as Christians, we should believe that the Jewish people need to receive their Messiah. That's why we support Chosen People Ministries and there's other great organizations like Jews for Jesus, ministries to the Jewish people that are saying, you need to come to receive a Savior in Jesus. Yes, we have a lot in common. Yes, we can stand together on so many different issues, but you need to know Jesus the Messiah, the Savior. It applies more than that. I said by extension, I think to all world religions. You know, basically every religion teaches salvation by works. Islam and basically all teaching, you can reach nirvana or so forth by a right understanding of karma and a reaching of good works. It all ultimately comes down to the law written in our hearts. Even folk religions that pop up throughout different parts of Asia or Africa, ultimately it's do these sacrifices, do these rituals, be a certain type of person, and you will reach salvation however it's defined. You can't get there from here. (laughs) There is no salvation through our works. It applies to anyone, religious or not, who tries to be perfect without grace. If you talk to the average person who is not a religious person, and you said to them, do you believe you're going to go to heaven? Their answer will probably be yes. And if you ask them the next question, why do you think you're going to go to heaven? Their answer will be something along the lines of, because I'm a good person. Now by that, they probably mean, I'm better than the average Joe, right? If you divide all humanity down the middle, I'm in the upper 50%, okay? As if God sort of graves on a curve, uh, and just, well, as long as I'm on the, the better side of humanity, I'm all set. Again, it's the law in our heart trying to save ourselves by our good works. And yes, I do believe this does apply to a Christian who is, whose heart is still trying to be perfected by their works. They haven't understood the full implications of the gospel of Christ. They try, they fail, they don't see the victory that we have in Jesus. 
Romans doesn't describe the Christian life as ultimately a failure, friends. It's a victorious, spirit-filled life. Look at 21 through 25. He writes this, the law is now overcome by Jesus. Paul points to the way out, the way out of this struggle. I want to do right, but whenever I want to do right, evil is right there with me. Sin is standing right next to me. The sin that works within me in my very sinful nature. I delight in the law of God in my mind, as any Jewish person would should say. Psalm 1, Psalm 19, Psalm 119. We delight in the law of the Lord. It should be our delight. But at the same time, there's another law at work warring in my mind, the law of sin. Paul's conclusion, verse 24, wretched man that I am. I can't find a way out. Who will deliver me? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. There's the answer, friends. There's the way out. There's where Paul finally found his way out through Jesus Christ. He summarizes the chapter in 725b. The law of God we try to strive for. By the end of the day, the law of sin is at work in our flesh. Again, as any Jew would have that inner struggle. Jesus Christ frees us from the law. Friends, without Jesus, it's one or the other. We're either going to try to be righteous by the law and fail. So try to be a good person, try the best you can, do the best you can, and ultimately not even come close to reaching the standard that God has set for us. Or just go ahead and give up and be lawless. It's legalism or antinomianism. It's self-righteousness or licentiousness. We're going to go in one of the two directions. We need a rescuer. We need one who steps into our world and takes us out of this cycle and makes us his own. That we cannot achieve our righteousness by our own works and we cannot simply embrace sin. We turn to the Lord. One of my most, one of my favorite sort of pictures from the world of uh, art and literature is in Les Miserables. Everyone's pretty much, I think, familiar with Les Miserables, right? There's the part where Jean Valjean comes out of, finishes his, his prison term, and he's going to have basically this convict title for the rest of his life, can barely get a job, can barely find food. He goes to a priest, eventually attacks the priest and steals from him, steals the silver. You guys are familiar with the scene. The police catch him with the silver, red-handed. They bring him back to the priest and say, we caught him, he stole your silver. And the priest says, no, no, I gave it to him. Let him go. And the police are shocked, of course, and they let him go. And this is what Victor Hugo writes. The priest says to him, Forget not. Never forget that you have promised me to use this silver to become an honest man. Jean Valjean, my brother, you belong no longer to evil, but to good. It is your soul that I am buying for you. I withdraw it from dark thoughts and from the spirit of perdition and I give it to God. You have been rescued but rescued for a purpose. Or if you prefer the musical but remember this my brother see in this some higher plan you must use this precious silver to become an honest man by the witness of the martyrs by the passion and the blood God has raised you out of darkness. I have bought your soul for God. 
We have a rescuer that saves us from the pursuit of self-righteousness. But that also means we are rescued for a purpose to know and love and serve him. We are a wretch outside of Jesus. As John Newton wrote in the famous song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved not just a man, (laughs) not just a decent human being, a wretch like me. Friends, be rescued by Jesus. If you have never come to Jesus, and maybe you're here visiting, maybe you're watching online, be rescued by him. He is Savior and Lord. He is gentle and humble, and he welcomes you to save you from the pursuit of self-righteousness or given over to licentiousness and sin. If you are a Christian and you continue to struggle with guilt and shame and feeling unworthy, look to Jesus. He's the only perfect one. He's the only Savior. We're wretches whom he has rescued from the clutch of sin. If you're still struggling with your own pet sins, still giving in to temptation, to these little sins that still get a hold and have dominion over your life, look to Jesus who has rescued you from our sin. It's actually all of us from our sin. Spurgeon wrote about this very verse. Sin, a little thing, it girded the Redeemer's head with thorns and pierced his heart. It made him suffer anguish, bitterness, and woe. Look upon all sin as that which crucified the Savior, and you will, be, you will see it to be exceedingly sinful. Remember what it took to rescue you. Not because you can save yourself, but because you wish to please and love and serve your Savior. If you're struggling with gratitude and you're struggling in your worship, look to Jesus who rescued us. Get your eyes on him and your hearts will be brought to worship. As I mentioned that this is Lent. Uh, Lent is not in the Bible. All right? uh, there is no mention of the Christian calendar, what we're supposed to do. Nothing in the Bible says you have to fast or that you have to give something up or that you can't eat meat on Fridays. Okay? That's all church tradition. It can be good. It can be helpful. None of it is necessary. None of it is required of us. But when you look at the church calendar throughout 2,000 years of church history, it's all about Jesus. That's the point. Advent leads up to his birth. Lent leads up to his resurrection. It's supposed to get all of our attention as believers on the Lord Jesus himself. Get your focus on him who who saves us as wretches and makes us his own. Jesus Christ rescues us from the law. I love the simplicity of the gospel. Romans, of course, is sort of a deep dive, right? It's, it's, that's the whole point of this. Clar- gospel clarified, explaining what is really simple, but giving a deeper understanding of what it means to be rescued by Jesus. But let's not miss the simplicity. Human beings are called to live under a set of rules, just like a gym or a pool or roads or the rules of the road. We call it law or morality or whatever. We fail. We break the rules. We break the rules so bad, simply knowing the rules makes us worse. (laughs) We actually get worse when we hear what the rules are. But Jesus has come and has rescued us so that we are forgiven, free from its authority. 
Our feet are set on a rock and given a new life in him. Augustus Toplady wrote a famous hymn called Rock of Ages. This is in 1762. He was traveling in England and a major storm, a fierce storm uh, took over and so he had to take shelter in in a gap in the gorge from the storm. And while there, he wrote the lyrics to Rock of Ages. Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed, listen to this, O be of sin the double cure, cleanse me from its guilt and power. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Vile or wretched, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Pray with me. Our gracious God, thank you for the amazing grace of the gospel that saved a wretch like me. Thank you, Father, for freedom, not only from sin and its guilt and power, but freedom from the law. Father, we will never be righteous by our own good works. We could try a million lifetimes and would fail every one of them. We do the things we do not want to do, and that which we know we should not do, we do. But who will rescue us from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. What amazing grace we celebrate together. In Jesus' name, amen.